Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Hey, Shein, another week, another topic. Happy International Women's Day, Jeremy. Have you celebrated the women in your life yet? I think you're outnumbered in your household. <laughs> Two daughters, one wife. Yesterday was fun. Uh, we swung by a pitch competition and helped judge for Crib and Launchpad. So it was a Women's Founders Day pitch competition. It was just nice to hang out. And I thought it was a nice community. People, a lot of people were swapping tips and people were talking about ARR and net revenue retention within the audience, within themselves in conversation. I was like, oh, that's quite awesome. So it was nice. And also there's lots of good food, actually. Cool. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was at the Eaton House Community Foundation event raising money for less privileged children. They were launching a book featuring female entrepreneurs as a way to fund their efforts. But it's the third gala I've been to this week for International Women's. And so I'm a frequent gala attendee. That's a joke, guys. So it's been a bit of a painful week. I think that's a fair point, right? What's your favorite part about International Women's Day? I'll start first. I'll say like this didn't really exist 10 years ago, right? I mean, I think 10 years ago, IWD wasn't a thing in Southeast Asia. And I think, yeah, I think folks are talking about it, discussing it. Do you know it's a public holiday in communist bloc countries? What? Is this a communist holiday? Yeah, it's a, yeah because I have an Azerbaijani founder who I met yesterday, and he brought me a present. And I was like, that's very unusual. Founders don't normally bring me presents. And he's like, happy International Women's Day. He's like, in my country, this is a public holiday. And so I, I got you something. And I was like, wow, that's really sweet. Wow, that is a true fact. I had never heard of it. If you need shipping software, please <laughs> check out Magicport. Any shipping yeah. operators in our audience, Magicport will help you streamline your operations. But yes, I did learn that it is a 
public holiday in communist former Soviet bloc countries. You know, what's interesting is I think when it first came out, I think a lot of folks were very skeptical about it. And now I think I was at a couple of meals and a lot of women really liked having that day to celebrate, to hang out, to discuss some of the topics. So it was a nice and a milestone in some way to receive some thoughts, consideration, get a message from HR about some events on that day. But it just felt like a nice moment for them, right? And I thought, it's like, oh, okay. Jeremy, yeah. that's a low bar. It's like, it's really nice once a year that someone acknowledges you exist. <laughs> and maybe we should think about bigger issues that you face. Come on, man. Okay, wow. Well, Let's do better than that. You make it sound like the rest of the year is like International Men's Day. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. We live in a man's world. Okay. okay, I will tell you my favorite part of the International Women's Day. There is a... Twitter that every time a corporate handle tweets out happy International Women's Day, it tweets out what the wage differential is between men and women in that organization. And it also now this year, it tweets the Delta from last year. So I find that very hilarious. And I think that really speaks to, okay, great, let's have a celebration, let's raise money. But what are we actually doing in our organizations to improve gender balance or gender equity? You got to start with the honey, right? And then a drop of honey will something, something, make everything sweeter. I mean, the point is, this is the nice stuff and like the stick is very painful and it comes later down the road. Okay, we start first with everybody agreeing is a good thing to, to recognize this, to think about it and then the tough conversations come later, right? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I just don't like papering it over with all this feel-good stuff if no action actually happens. Uh, you gotta, this, step one, be nice. Step two, tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> HR sweats nervously as step two. No, marketing sweats at number step two. Step three is when HR starts sweating, right? Well, yeah. So my friend said that his HR sent out a survey for International Women's Day where everyone was going to vote on the most attractive, best-dressed woman in their office. And he was like, I don't think this is what International Women's Day is about. And we probably shouldn't be commenting on our co-workers' physical appearance. You've got to be kidding me. Wait. No, and it's a U.S. company. But this is local HR, apparently. But still, I mean, this does not pass the, like, did we think eight seconds about this before we hit send on the email? I'm sorry. I'm just imagining <laughs> how HR has to figure out how to, like, do they just, like, actually announce the results, actually announce the winner once they hear the complaints? Or do they just, like, ghost everybody <laughs> from there? I think they should just ghost. They should just be like, oh, Somebody hacked my account. We <laughs> would never do this. Music Outlook, we retracted our email <laughs> one day afterwards. But that's worse, right? When you see a retracted email, it makes you want to read the email more, right? Yeah. Because you're like, well, what happened? Why did they pull it back? I think maybe ghosting might be the best. Sending a correction email afterwards is also pretty tough, I think. But at least it's more honest. I guess so. You know, I think you have people credit for being like, this was misguided. We probably shouldn't have done this. It's true. I think transparency is the best answer. It's just that, you know, oh, poor HR. Right. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, well. So on the note of International Women's Day, I thought it was quite interesting because the last night just watching pictures, about half of them were actually about fintech. And recently we wanted to talk about fintech because F Prime came up with this capital report, obviously very US and global centric fintech. But I thought it was interesting that topic to like dive in a little bit more because fintech has been pretty hot in Southeast Asia. The Southeast Asia focus fintech funds like 1982 ventures with person. So yeah, we'd love to dive into this. What was your favorite insight from the report, which we will link to in the transcript and show notes? My favorite slide is slide 19. 
which the title is Fintech companies are now valued more like incumbents and in some cases at a discount given their capital inefficiency. And why do I like that slide? I think it's like a timely reminder, right? Which is like a lot of what some fintechs are doing is to replace incumbents. And so in the early days, you're kind of selling this story about like either you are like growing faster than the incumbent or you're like a more capital light version, blah, blah, blah. But it just hasn't happened yet, right? Like you're going to get there. And when the music stops, you kind of have to be really honest about like, are you actually really on a path to be more capital efficient? Or was that just a story you were selling the street? I think we make this mistake a lot in things that are fundamentally lending businesses. And people try to value them like software businesses. But lending businesses are basically valued as a multiple book. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, in a lending business, what are my levers, right? There's cost of capital, cost of acquisition, and quality of my underwriting. And you're not going to beat a bank on cost of capital. It's actually quite hard to beat a bank on cost of capital. Cost of acquisition, maybe. And I think that's why I really like embedded models that have the distribution built in. And then quality of the underwriting, like product market fit in lending is not because lots of people want your like cheap money, right? Product market fit is like you actually are not blowing yourself up with your underwriting when these books are starting to mature. And I think in the early days, people often get really loose with their underwriting standards to show growth. And then when the market turns, that's when a lot of this stuff blows. So I, I think the sort of like the capital efficiency piece, right, is really important. And ultimately, at the end of the day, whether you are an investor or a founder, you are in the business of capital allocation. And you need to be really honest about how effectively that capital is actually working for you. So that's my favorite dorky slide. To be dorky with you, I think the tricky part that you said is about the quality of underwriting, right? And because you're getting repayments as interest payments and so, so forth, and then you had to get paid back on the principal as well, right, when you're doing lending. And so I think there's a tricky part where revenue seem large right, as a function of book. But the question is, what's the net interest margin you're going to collect at the end of the day, right? I think the other part I think about it as well quite a bit is that the quality of underwriting, you know, I think everybody says like, oh, all the risks are relatively known and they're uncorrelated so we can balance so, so forth, right? But I think one thing that often happens, especially for those that are obviously doing B2B or even B2C financing, is that there's something called recessions, right? That happened every seven to eight years, right? And so all these like uncorrelated risks when you're underwriting all become correlated. So a good reminder itself is like Asian financial crisis wasn't that long ago and everything went horrible for at once, right? I think we saw that recently in crypto, everything horrible happened at once, underwriting-wise. And we've seen a whole bunch of institutions that lent to lots of crypto funds that felt like the underwriting was good, maybe individually, but correlated. Silvergate just went down. And it's more shit is going to happen from there, right? And I think it's a speed run of what happens when lending goes bad, right? For me, a favorite slide I have was actually looking at the fintech index going up. So it was like, kind of went up from about slide seven. It was like, okay, the finance in fintech index was around 200, 300 billion. They hits 1.3 trillion in late 2021. And now it's like 400 billion by December 2022. Oh, shout out to John Lin, who is a principal there. So my old university UC Berkeley classmate in social impact consulting. We used to recruit and work together on social impact and nonprofits and social enterprises consulting. So, but I think the fact that it was just like down by 72% from the peak and obviously it's much sharper correction than the S&P, it's also sharper than the tech correction. 
I think kind of reminded me what was driving in the first place. And it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, right? Is the cost of capital, cost of acquisition, and quality of underwriting, right? And I think the part that was really, I think, unclear at the point of time was that the cost of capital was just not only low, where there was like 0% interest rates, but it was effectively negative, right? Where the US Fed was actually penalizing folks for holding cash, right? And so I was pushing all these limited partners to push money, of course, into VC funds that would blow up these evaluations. We've talked about it in the past. But also push money into lending and venture debt and all these other debt vehicles. And so people just trying to get as much money out through the door because they knew that maybe the quality of underwriting might be shit down the road. But then it didn't matter because if you held cash, you're definitely losing a couple percent, right? Consistently. And so I think what happened was that I think fintech companies had this double tailwind, right? Obviously, they had this valuation spike as VC funds that had a lot of capital wanted to put more money in. And I think they had a lot of access to low-cost credit, right? And that let them basically have report tremendous net interest margins because cost of capital is low. And also calm and peace and conviction that it's not going to change for a while, right? And so you get very aggressive because interest rates are always low. Then you're just thinking to yourself, like, things aren't going to change. Let's just go out there, right? And now with so much venture debt, it's all pegged to the standard interest rates. Every time interest rate goes up by 1%, and then you're like, plus 4%, right? And it keeps rising, rising, rising. And then everybody's like, well, underwriting standards have to go up because now you have to hit like a hurdle rate of like effectively 12% to even break even on some of these loan vehicles. It is actually quite difficult to lend actually or to feel comfortable lending, right? And now I think the Fed has recently announced they want to, they may have to increase interest rates higher than expected. I, I think it's going to be a little bit tougher for the lending side. Yeah, I mean, I think, but this is kind of related, right? Which is like, I think there's always this battle between fundamentals and momentum. And so there is this moment where you're like, hey, if the money's there, you should take it, right? Ride the momentum. But then you have to know at some point you're going to have to pay the bill, right? And that's where fundamentals like. And so I think being honest with yourself and not being fooled by the momentum of fundraising, which is sort of different than the momentum of actual business traction is important for founders to keep in mind. Yeah, the wisest founders I found were the ones who were like, okay, I know this valuation is stupid, so I'm going to be much more blah, blah, blah. I know I did a good job fundraising, but let me just be smart and wise about how I spend and everything and be able to proactively do layoffs, et cetera. Even, I mean, let's be real, right? When everybody tells you you're smart and you know everything's going well, I think it's very hard to be wise, right? It's very hard to, like you just said, right? Have that equilibrium. And I think, that's where founders have actually gone through. Do we not all have Asian parents who constantly are beating us down? That's the voice in the back of my head. <laughs> but it's like so nice when you have all that love that you're like, oh, it's amazing, finally. I mean, Cassandra was not very popular for predicting the fall, right? So Yeah, but I mean, I know my father always says, is there a substance or not? Uh, that's, yeah. Right? And it's true, yeah. right? It's like, you need to be like intellectually honest with yourself about what's happening in your business. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because obviously this report kind of like shows like two sides of it, right? They felt like SaaS was doing a better job of it. That was one. And obviously they started talking a little bit more about, I think my other favorite one was kind of like over the past 12 months, less than 25% of fintech companies were profitable. But now over the next 12 months, half of them expect to be profitable. And I'm like laughing a bit, right? Because you're like, wait, so 50% expect not to be profitable over the next 12 months. And then only 25%, how can they actually get there or not? This question, right? But I was like, ah, I think there's going to be quite a lot of pain. And I think they talk a little bit about it, right? They expect a lot of down rounds for some sectors, which is actually a good news, right? I think if you can raise any capital, a down round or a flat round, I think you're really 
I think to be applauded, honestly, for being able to keep the plane flying, right? Yeah. So like one benefit of these gala dinners that I was complaining about earlier is that I actually got to see a lot of people at them. And one founder basically told me we're cash flow positive in Q4. And that's continuing to track and how incredible that feels. Because she's like, hey, I'm in control of my own destiny. I don't have to raise another dollar. And this business, like we're starting to get the, understand the growth drivers and we are making money, right? Not just on a unit level, but at a whole company level. And I was like, high five, man, right now. Like that feels freaking awesome. And then at the same time, last night I had a conversation with a founder who was like, can you tell me stories about founders who had to make difficult decisions and how did they steer the ship, right? How did they make cuts? And so we kind of talked through that, right? Which is that like, people are always afraid of cutting marketing because they're worried that it'll slow growth, right? And then you're in this like, no win where you're not growing. But then I think there's this sort of like, I think that's item one, which is like, I think Airbnb did a great job, right? In the pandemic, they cut marketing and then they haven't really ramped up spend since because they found other channels and organic to be just as, if not more effective. So I think it's one of these things where like necessity, like is the mother invention. And then the second thing is that people have just have to cut projects and narrow focus. And that's always really hard. So you say these 50% of companies that are going to be profitable in the next 12 months, like it will be interesting to kind of see what other follow-on impacts, right? Are they all announcing like business units that they're no longer going to spend money on and focus on the core? Are they announcing new pivots? Are they cutting marketing spend? Like separate from the layoffs, right? The other variable spend other than headcount is this marketing spend. But I don't know, Jeremy, in your portfolio, what are you seeing for folks trying to really kind of get ship shape? I think intellectually everybody knows what to do because there's so many sub stacks and VC thought leadership on what to do. And I think obviously, I think it's quite straightforward, right? I mean, it's either expense reduction, cost reduction and revenue improvement, right? So either there's a function of efficiency of leverage, a function of just like prioritizing which are the best channels, for example, that work for acquisition and just cutting everything else that doesn't matter, right? So I think everything that needs to be done is done. But I think what's interesting, like you said, is I think people are looking for these stories, right? And I think it's more about the emotionality and, and not a bad way. I'm just saying, but at the end of the day, it's a human decision by the founder to say, I need to change my mindset, right? And I need to change my point of view, my optimism about, for example, downstream investors investing at the last multiple. These are things I need to do, right? And I think that's where, I think what you shared, I think you, you shared parables, right? In that sense, like human stories. And that's so important because that's what people are asking for. People are looking for human stories. Like, how do I do it? Are people going to be angry at me? How am I going to feel afterwards? What do I need to do? How do I say it? It's all very human. And I think, and that's why I'm a big believer is that obviously the whole company is a function of the leadership, right? In terms of decision-making and the decision-making is a function of the founders, right? And I think that's really a, the crux of it is that founder has to make a decision based on obviously data, the levers, but I think the human parable is important to unlock it. And I think that's where I think, obviously we talked about this, like how founders is a relatively new phenomenon over the past 10 years of Southeast Asia. So hasn't necessarily gotten scarred by the, the global recession slash financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis, obviously the stock market, Silicon Valley boom and bust, right? Back in the 2000s. I think now we're finally seeing parables. And I think the founders who have managed to do it already earlier on, maybe they got publicized on Dew Street Asia or Tech in Asia, et cetera. I, I think they're starting to get a lot of questions from other founders as well. It'd be like, how did you do it, right? So I think that, and again, it's like, how did you do it? It's not very hard, right? Again, because 
the levers are clear. It's more like, how did you as a human person choose to do it? How did you manage it, right? So I thought it was interesting. Um, re- set yeah. of requests, dimension of it, yeah? Yeah, tell me a story. Well, nobody wants to hear a story about zero-based budgeting, right? So... Yeah, and I, but the concept is quite simple, right? Which is you start from scratch and then you go line by line and everybody is to justify why it should be part of the budget, right? And that's very hard because there was a bunch of promises you made three months ago over dinner to a manager and then you presented a budget to the board director six months ago and you got approved and now you got to redo it all over again. And then also it's so much work that you have to do while trying to keep the boat afloat. Like who wants to do zero-based budgeting all over again, right? Yeah, it was an interesting question, right? He was like, well, I think exactly this point, right? Which is like, I have a budget that's approved by the board, but I think some of this stuff isn't going to work the way we think it is. And so how much do I cut because I think it's not productive? But then I have to go back to the board and say, we revised our numbers. It's totally like about expectation setting and management. I think that's the big thing, right? Which is, I think a lot, I'll say this is like people expect, especially founders, some founders expect boards to be the boss, right? And so they kind of treat them like a boss because all of us were employees at some point. So we treat them as if the boss know everything. But I would say it's like not, right? I mean, the founder is still the boss. Because they understand the business and they're clear about what needs to be done and they're looking at it day in and day out. I feel like if in that situation, founders, I think the biggest mindset change is that the founders are sort of boss, right? In the sense that... Well, it's a symbiotic symbiotic relationship, right? Because also they want their investors to participate in the next round, right? And so it's how does that conversation go, right? Is it like, I told you X, but actually it's going to be Y? And then the investor's like, wait, how come? Or it's like, hey, here are the assumptions that we had when we said X was going to happen. Now that we've been in market with this strategy, here's what we're learning. And this is why Y is going to happen. And although this means Y is less than X, we think that on a like contribution margin basis, this is actually better for the business. And so then I think you help somebody understand, right? But I think from the investor point of view, If you have a founder who's like constantly changing what they're seeing, it also doesn't inspire confidence, right? And so part of the communication is like, how did we arrive at this? Not just, hey, we're changing the numbers, right? That always freaks people out. Yeah, 100%. I think that's the communication language is so key. So to kind of like define that a little bit clearly, and I'm thinking more about the mindset, which is don't look at them as a boss. You can't change it or you can't disagree with them. Yeah. But neither are they subordinate to you in a sense. But I think working with them as really smart co-founders and hopefully you picked well, good advisors and mentors that you trust, and you're going to have this deep thinking with them, right? And then being okay to have this like expansion of the logic, right? And so, and I think it can be a very nice, wonderful window moment of truth, right? And I, I think it can be, wonderfully confidence-inspiring to have someone say, hey, these are things we've de-risked. These are things we have not de-risked. These are things we did well. These are things that we haven't figured out because most VCs should understand that this entire startup space is a giant experiment, right? Every startup is an experiment with multiple things to de-risk and being able to be part of that journey together is a trust-building exercise, I think, when you're able to go deep. So it can be a net positive, right? It's not a confidence destruction measure, Neither is a confidence neutral measure. I think if well done, can be a confidence building measure, actually. 
So kind of like on that note, obviously they talk about the future a little bit. They talk about a couple of key teams they said here was payments orchestration, vertical fintech, private asset infrastructure, novel consumer data APIs, instant payment rails, crypto compliance. So obviously these are all very much US trends, right? And they share about how they think that fintech has only taken less than 10% of US total revenue. So in the sense that they're kind of arguing that all the incumbents are still 90% and only 10% belongs to startups. Very quickly, what do you think about Southeast Asia and what do you think the stage of fintech roughly looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think the payment rail stuff, I think is applicable to Southeast Asia, right? Our payment rails are still like pretty heterogeneous and uneven across markets. I think the data guys here have struggled a little bit more and partially I think that's due to the nascency of our ecosystem, which is like working with incumbents or legacy banks who may not have an API strategy. It's hard to like plug in data APIs and then build stuff on top of it. And then you think you're going to sell to fintechs and fintechs are like, well, I'm so busy trying to build a bunch of infrastructure on my own. Like I can't even consume this data to do something with it. And so I think those sales cycles have been pretty slow. Vertical fintech, I think is relevant, right? A lot of the companies that went out in the SMB kind of like accounting space, they all sold visions around vertical fintech and embedded fintech. So I think that's actually pretty relevant. I think payment orchestration is a little ways off from us, right? Because we're still trying to get people off of cash. So yeah, I think that's like a less relevant trend. And then similarly for private asset infrastructure, right? Because I think outside of a couple of cities, the capital base just isn't really there. So you don't have as much of a market there. And then crypto compliance, I mean, yeah, I think regulators are becoming more active. But if I'm a regulator, I think I'm focused more on some of the core things that are being shipped out throughout my ecosystem. Crypto is not necessarily the top of the list outside of a couple of jurisdictions that are trying to become crypto hubs like Singapore and Hong Kong. Although actually that's not true. I think I think OJK is also spending more time looking at crypto these days. So I revised my statement there. So I think of these six trends, I would say I think the three that are more relevant for Southeast Asia are vertical fintech, payment rails, and crypto compliance. Yeah, I, I think for me, I think Southeast Asia is interesting because obviously a lot of digital bank transfers have been orchestrated by government. So there's actually zero cost uh, transfers now. So Visa, MasterCard, obviously, they're not getting outflanked by startups. They're getting outflanked by PayNow, the PayNow integration in Singapore, integrating with India. Is this kind of really interesting to see government really taking on the active orchestration role for payment transfers at a consumer level? And I think that there's a lot to be done in Southeast Asia. I think there's a lot of tin file consumers who have very little data and how do you make them thick file is the big question mark, right? Because you need a thick file in order to make better decisions. But the truth is, yeah, is most folks underbanked in Southeast Asia? The answer is yes. But I think underbank is a very low quantum in terms of what you can loan them and so, so forth. So I think it'll be interesting. I think that's where a lot of folks are trying to do, verticalize it on property tech, for example, or ring cars, for example or like Erudify for higher education? Like what's the biggest vertical load that's the biggest quantum for an underbanked consumer that's also relatively clear about how we partner and figure out the principle and the repayments? Well, we're back all of a sudden because we're in the middle of recording the FinTech episode, we heard news about Silicon Valley Bank imploding. So the overall situation is that Silicon Valley Bank obviously face issues and effectively has been placed into receivership, which basically means it's now nationalized by the FDIC. So there was a meltdown, implosion crisis. So from your perspective, Shea, what do you think happened and why? At the root of it, there was, I mean, I think management has some responsibility to bear here. I think to some extent this was avoidable. And so I think as recently as a week ago, right, Gary Becker was at the 
Upfront Summit in LA talking about how they were a great partner. But basically the underlying issue was there was a mismatch between some of the assets they held. So they had bought a bunch of low interest rate bonds in the run-up. And then as rates rose, there was a mismatch between the things they held and what they needed to pay out. They actually did take steps to correct some of this. There was a deal with General Atlantic to put in $500 million. There was an additional share issuance. I think there was a bond offering. But a lot of this was pretty poorly communicated. And so when they sold some of their liquid securities, which was reasonable, by the way, at a loss, in order to buy new securities at bore a higher interest rate. This triggered a little bit of doubt about what was going on. There was a town hall where the CEO got on, which did not inspire confidence. And part of it was bad timing. Silvergate Bank had just gone down for a totally different reason for their crypto exposure. And that started to cause the murmurings of people to be like, hey, is there something we don't know? Maybe we should move our money just to be safe. And as this is a very sort of classical prisoner's dilemma, where you don't get any points for hanging around, right? So it's like, you should probably defect, right? You should probably take your money out. If it turns out to be a storm in a teacup, that's fine. You just move your money back in. But if it does turn out to be a bad situation, you're safe. And then that just snowballed, basically, because no one had any incentive to tell people to stay. Everyone's incentive and their responsibilities, to their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders and to their LPs, basically, was to say, hey, you should probably do something. And I think the one sort of unusual detail about Silicon Valley Bank is that they bank a ton of funds and a ton of startups. They're actually, for 40 years, have been an incredible partner to startups in the ecosystem and have been willing to understand and bank startups that your standard G Big Four bank wouldn't touch. But at the heart of it, it is not necessarily that they took a bunch of startup risk. At the heart of it was that they had a bunch of like, assets sitting at like one and a half percent when they were needing to pay out four or five percent on their deposits. I, I hear you. And I think obviously management error is a big one. I think, like you said, crypto linked contagion, crowd psychology, and obviously game theory, right? Prisoner's dilemma is like, you don't want to be the last person in the bank run, right? You don't want to be the last person hoarding, <laughs> trying to get toilet paper. So I think that's all of that. I think I'll add a couple more based on my perspective as well. I think there were also structural macro stuff that was there in the background, like the interest rate hikes over time as well has been a big hidden hand of this because for us, the global macro environment has basically meant that I think in February, I think the regulators put a report saying that US banks have over $600 billion of unrealized losses on their balance sheets. Obviously, didn't say who exactly and where it's distributed. But obviously, that created some fear, but it is tough for banks to make money because they don't make money in deposits, they make money on lending. And lots of companies are struggling to repay their staff, right? So there's unrealized losses and all that stuff hasn't been marked. The book's value hasn't been reevaluated seriously. And so people have question marks. And then I think the second thing is that startups are very sensitive to interest rates, right? So interest rates affect the rate of fundraising, how much optimism you can put in the future and how much willingness you're able to value future cash flows, right? And so startups overall have less cash, less fundraising future, and so more flighty, I think, as a customer base than they would have been, for example, two years ago. I think every startup was very calm and relatively well-funded with these large cash checks, right? So I thought those were like 
some macro stuff in the background that's really quite hidden and i think i, I think the reason why we're kind of talking about the whys is because I think we have to generalize this a little bit more to what's going to happen next, right? So a couple of a couple of like predictions. I think that this is going to slow down fundraising for. I mean, okay, first of all, the first order impact is people are going to be tough making payroll, right? I mean, if you are a very small bank below two hundred fifty thousand dollars of bank balances, you probably weren't at Silicon Valley Bank anyway. But if you were, you probably can still make payroll. So very small companies are going to have an issue, but. I think a lot of medium and late stage companies, obviously, it's very hard to move your assets off a platform in effectively two days, right? Finance team, operations team, payroll, I mean, yeah. I mean, I would push back a little bit there. I think 30% of YC companies who banked at Silicon Valley Bank can't make payroll this month is what Gary tweeted. And so, I mean, part of it is that even small companies did bank at at SVB. And so right now, like to give you kind of a sense of situation, right? Like, I mean, with our own portfolio, we emailed every single person to be like, what is your exposure? Can you make payroll? Do you need introductions to other bank relationships? And so every VC now is trying to get a handle on how much exposure there is in their portfolio, whether they can make payroll and how to figure out getting them emergency funds. So I think that'll definitely slow down new financings because everyone is trying to triage their current portfolio. It's actually not dissimilar to when the pandemic hit and everyone was trying to figure out how to help their companies get access to PPP loans and bridge through those initial months of the pandemic. So, And a lot of people, when they started to hear about the news, were trying to initiate wires out of SVB. And not everyone's wire cleared, but you don't know, right? You're like logging in, you're like, processing. What does that mean? Is my money out? But I think on Monday, people will get their 250k FDIC insurance amount. And then anything above the 250, they're going to get a voucher for the balance. And then it's going to take time to figure out how they're going to get access to the balance and what percent of the balance they will get access to depending on whatever acquirer decides to cover of that deposit liability. Yeah, I think... I agree with you. I think my definition of small was below 250 grand of balance. So I think that's what I might define as as like pre-seed or lower. But yeah, I agree with you that I think if you're medium size or I mean larger than that, you're in trouble, right? Because first of all, like if you run out of cash, you die, right? It doesn't matter how you die, whether you didn't fundraise or whatever it is, but it's, if it's Silicon Valley Bank doing it to you, it really sucks, right? And I think not only that, there's a lot of working capital flows, right? That you need to have, you need to move in and out. It's not just payroll. And then when you're counterparty, your B2B SaaS company, right? As I say, right? It's also facing that cash flow. I think this weekend, yeah. everybody vendor payments, Vendor payments will get delayed, right? Because 100%. people will be like, okay, who else? If I got to pay my employees first, who else can I put off? Yeah. B2B SaaS would get totally hammered because everybody's just going to... You need to show up as revenue, but I think it'll show up as receivables, right? From their perspective. Or even cancellations, to be honest, right? So painful for SaaS as well. I think Southeast Asia is a bit less exposed, obviously, because Southeast Asia doesn't really bank as much with Silicon Valley Bank. But I think there are yeah. some companies that move to the US, expanding to the US. And I think they had a choice between working with either, for example, Bank of America, because it's very easy and convenient, or they had a choice with Silicon Valley Bank because it's a relationship. So I think there's going to be an interesting... Well, SVB know, banked yeah. a lot of international companies because they were willing to open bank accounts without social security number. And so they actually... They were actually great for that. If you had U.S. operations and you were a foreign company, often you might start out with an SVB relationship. Yeah. And I think on that note as well, because of that openness of relationships, I think SVB had a very 
close-knit relationship, not just with startups, but also the venture capital, right? So lots of funds had capital on SVB. They also worked in terms of debt and facilities and so, so, so forth. So I think financing rounds probably going to slow down or get even canceled maybe due to this process, right? As people get handled. Yeah, I mean, I think the good thing about funds is basically they operate on a capital call basis, right? So it's not like funds have huge, it's not like their whole fund is sitting in the bank account. Like they call the capital over time as they needed. And and SVB is a big provider of capital call lines of credit for funds, which is a great business. And whoever ends up buying SVB is going to buy all that, buy that book as well. So I mean, I agree there may be short-term delays, but I, I suspect it's more because people are tied up with their portfolios and dealing with that necessarily than funds have too much exposure, hopefully. Yeah, well, I think the tricky part, of course, is whether this spirals further, right? Because I've definitely received the first set of emails from various VCs, right? Or founders forwarding what their VC sent to them. But I think someone just sent to me, just a further thing, which is like, their VC is saying, hey, given the SVB, what happened is let's please be very cautious and we think it's going to happen to like Mercury, First Republic, Signature, PacWest, those that are more digital or technology first businesses, right? Or even the neobanks, right? So I think it's true that like, I think a lot of the impacts will get solved because like you said, I think Acquirer can come in to clean up SVB because SVB has a good set. But yeah, I think everyone's kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop potentially is does it spread, right? And if it spreads, well, then I think that's the big kahuna there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think SVB is a unique in the startup ecosystem. I mean, yeah, if someone tries to trigger a bank run somewhere else, then, you know, you, you could have an issue. First Republic is much more diversified. It does not have a huge exposure as much to that. I can't really speak for some of the other smaller banks, but it's like a real, uh, yeah. I mean, you're back to this prisoner's dilemma thing. Right. It's going to be interesting. But I mean, I think the other side is true too, right? Which is getting emails to say, do you want to bid on these assets? I think there are actually a lot of great assets there. And so my prediction is that they're going to have a named buyer by Monday when markets open. Like everyone right now is working through the weekend to make sure that this can be done in an orderly way. Yeah, I agree. JP Morgan. But I mean, it blows my mind really because it's like, I mean... I was working in venture capital when Bear Stearns went down and Lehman went down. And yeah, I mean, the, the speed is crazy. I, I think there's a crazy part for a lot of startup founders, right? I, I think it's just like effectively two days, I think. Tops, I think that's the definition, I would say, from underst- hearing, understanding, processing, moving money to closure, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I think he had a founder who like, couldn't get an answer and so drove down to a branch and basically said, give me my entire account and a cashier's check. I'm walking, I'm not leaving here without my money. That was the right call. And if you didn't make that drive, you know, it's a tough time. Yeah. Well, also it's not like SVB has a lot of branches. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I I think that's one interesting thing about bank runs these days, right? In the past, like 50 years ago, everybody had to like line up at a teller, right? And this is long line and a thousand people lining up basically meant that you had to line up as well to get your money out, right? But at least it was like bank runs would like take place over weeks or months, right? And then obviously the speed of response was slower, et cetera. But now because of digital WhatsApp, emails, et cetera, it's like, and everybody's all logging simultaneously. I mean, at one point the site went down. Yeah, because everyone was trying to queue their wires at the same time. So, so yeah, it's yeah, it's been a crazy 48 hours. I mean, so what are lessons here? I also have one. 
the lesson is, is good to be large like JP Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo. Too big to fail is a great strategy. Say at the Fed, you know, you're working with a central bank, you know, you can work well, with Warren Buffett. Diversifying diversified. your diversifying your bank accounts, I think, is an important one. I think big companies do this. Small companies generally don't because it's a lot of hassle to coordinate different accounts. And so thinking about spreading out your money up to the FDIC insured limit. Also, other there are other accounts that are insured that you can sweep into that are not on the bank's balance sheet. But yeah, I think cash management and treasury management will become more salient for people. So... Yeah, I think it goes back to our earlier point about underwriting quality is like, it's basically the model, right? Which is when are things uncorrelated risk factors and when do they become correlated? And I think when bad things happen, everything bad happens simultaneously, right? So. I mean, I think I'm still kind of in shock over the whole thing. It's just, it's been kind of a whirlwind and we're still trying to figure out, I think. I mean, I think the most pressing thing actually right now is payroll. So can companies make payroll? We're sort of at the beginning of March, right? But if you're running two payroll runs a month, right, the payroll run is coming up. If you were running a bunch of your stuff through SVB, so like Rippling just did an announcement, like they used to do all the payroll on behalf of their customers through SVB Rails. So the last few runs have been like stopped or stuck, and then they had to like move Rails to another company. So I think payroll for a lot of technology companies is going to be really kind of clunky for the next couple cycles. You have to change all your stuff. Like people, like your customers were sending you stuff, right? Or you're in the middle of a financing round and all your wires were going into your SVB account. So you need to stop all those wires and get them to like wire to your new account. So, but I think one thing we kind of started at the top about communication. I think communication is really important. So I'm an LP in a number of funds. And first thing this morning, there were half of them had emailed immediately to be like, we have no exposure. We're in the process of checking with our portfolio companies right now. We'll keep you updated. Same thing with our portfolio companies, the difference between the people who proactively tell you versus the ones you have to reach out to. So I think even if the answer is we have no exposure, I still think it's worthwhile to proactively communicate that to your investors. So like in, in sort of times of like crisis, I think strong and timely communication is really helpful. Yeah, that's an important lesson. I think there's going to be more pain. I mean, when you say you're not making payroll, but I think that also means, honestly, I think there are going to be companies. I don't know if it's crazy to say this, but I can't imagine layoffs. I can't imagine startup closures. I can imagine slowdown financing is fear. And that will also cause more startup closures and layoffs. So I think there's a little, I think a deeper sense of winter. I think we were kind of like, I think winter and then after that, it became like maybe some spring, I guess, maybe as of a couple of weeks ago, right? Everyone's was kind of like, okay, I think we kind of got a handle on this. And then I feel like winter is going to you know, freeze up tighter, right? For a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to take a while to work through the ramifications of SVB getting shut down. But I think in terms of the broader ecosystem, I'm really hoping that this doesn't trigger more. I, I think this is kind of like different from the 08 financial crisis and that it isn't like a situation where we're all like, oh my God, we don't have any idea about what the exposure is at various counterparties because we have these highly opaque securities that are valued in very strange ways that no one really knows what the real number at risk is. It's a much smaller sector of the port of the economy. It's a much simpler set of things. And so hopefully the regulators and potential acquirers can move quickly over the weekend and bring this to a reasonable conclusion come market open on Monday. 
Yeah, I do think that one thing I do think about is that if you are a Southeast Asia startup raising from USVCs, your USVC yeah. probably very busy yeah. this week, yeah. this month, right? Portfolio For management. Sure. For sure. Yeah, thinking about cash. So I think if you're looking to fundraise this quarter, maybe the next quarter, I think yeah, I think a lot of Southeast Asian startups were looking at US VCs and Southeast Asia VCs. But I think but, yeah. I think the US VCs were going to be slow anyway. Like we're in a risk off mode to begin with. It wasn't like people were risk on, and I think post twenty one and mid twenty two, like people were already pulling back out of their non core geographies. So yeah, this will continue. This will add to it, but I don't think this is like so much of a sea change. I think people were already kind of risk off. Yeah, I, I just say that because I met a lot of founders who feel like they get they keep taking calls with. USVC associates and everything feels very warm and fuzzy, right? And I'm just like very bearish personally. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to be an asshole, right? Like, yeah. But also, just like you shouldn't. Until the money hits the bank, don't don't count your chickens. Yeah, and I think what's your your personal key takeaway from this? Obviously, fintech from the finance sector. I mean, diversification is a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing is impenetrable. Yeah, and if you need to act, you need to act decisively, right? Like, don't hesitate. I'm hoping this is more of an anomaly. I don't think this is like a systemic thing. Yeah. So I'm not sure I have like a great sort of meta takeaway here. I think we're still processing, right? And we're still processing on the fly. I I agree with you. I think this is, I think it feels like a more isolated vanilla bank run in that sense. So I think that there's some familiarity with it around the contours of it. But I think it's going to be very painful. I think my personal key takeaway, again, is a big reminder, just like at the core of every finance and if bank lending, so so forth, there's a very core set of assumptions around, you can call it lending quality, net interest margins, people paying back on time. And there's all kinds of stuff you can say all about uncorrelated risk and therefore we're diversified across this portfolio. But I think really thinking through those like, supposed black swan events, which are every seven years or every bank run or whatever it is, but all these factors all become correlated, right? Very quickly. I think this is a good reminder itself to be like, can you imagine like, yeah, you're a SaaS company and suddenly all your customers all suddenly stopped, starts delaying their vendor payments, right? That's a very rare thing that shouldn't happen across 10,000 clients, but it could happen in this scenario, right? So I think for me, that's my personal takeaway is just like you said, which actually ties to your point about diversification, but it's like really kind of like saying like, where's your true diversification in, even in these scenarios? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. All the best. Godspeed yeah. to all the startups out there. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.